Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. the fanfare for the common man and here we are on 3CR 12 noon Saturday with the dogs program that's the defense of government schools here we are every noon Saturday to defend and to promote public education and as we say every Saturday that is education that is public in purpose and outcome above all it's public in access it's available to everyone with no strings attached, particularly no economic or religious strings or ethnic strings. And it is also education which should be owned and controlled uh, by the public and it is the only one that's publicly accountable. And because it's the only one that's publicly accountable, it's the only one that should be publicly funded because it is public in every way. Private education can never be public, however much it is publicly funded. Now, we have a uh, a website at www.adogs.info and we have a press release most weeks which we read out to you. But if you want to have a look at it, you can go up to our website. Now, this is press release 702. And uh, this week we'd like to talk about the tax system and structural inequalities. And those structural inequalities, of course, come down into the education system. Now, the Australian tax system more and more has become full of holes for the rich. It's like a lovely, rich gorgonzola cheese, I believe. The Australian tax system's been corrupted systematically by the wealthy in their favour. They've employed accountants and lawyers for generations to engage in systematic legal methods of avoiding tax as opposed to taxation evasion, which is illegal. Now, these schemes, which are rampant in our Australian tax system these days, have deprived the public treasury of billions of dollars of revenue that could and should be used for public services like health and education. Now, they've done this in the last half century more and more and got away with it because they have had the blessing of the Australian High Court, particularly the Barwick Court. When Justice Lionel Murphy attempted to blow the whistle on transfer pricing in corporate avoidance, uh, that was in 1985-86 with the Camalco case, he was hounded to his death. In those days, and it's nearly 40 years ago, The doyen of government finance analysis, Professor Russell Matthews, who was the director of the Centre for Research in Federal Financial Relations at the ANU in those days, described the Australian tax system as rotten because it would be difficult to improve on the present arrangements if we deliberately set out to design a tax system that requires the poor to pay more taxes than many of the rich. And that was what he wrote in The Mythology of Taxation in June 1984. He then observed that personal income tax had become a voluntary tax for the rich. They were paying so little. And here you have all of these people, listeners, who send their children to private schools who are telling us, we pay taxes too. Well, the plain fact of the matter is they're paying very little. But the ordinary working Australians... The Howard's Battlers. Remember Howard and his Battlers? We still wanted services. So in 1999-2000, Howard, with the help of Meg Lees from the Democrats, and they went west politically soon after, attempted to persuade Australian taxpayers that the DST, which is a very unfair transaction tax, and which impacts more on the poor than the rich, as we all know, was necessary for the future of a public education health system. Do you remember? Remember how we were persuaded that we had to pay all this GST so that we could get a really first-class public education system? 
So now we're saddled with the GST, while the wealthy continue to amass further privileges in their private schools, and we still can't get even a little bit of money for the disadvantaged in the public system. And the federal government is still complaining at the lack of money for an equitable system. The most obvious method used by wealthy families to avoid the tax system since the Middle Ages has been the family trust. Listeners, don't think that these family trusts that the Fairfax Media has been blowing the whistle on are anything new. They go back to the Middle Ages. If you don't want to to pay taxes, you set up a trust, preferably a charitable trust that pays no taxes at all. And this method, this family trust method, also enables the wealthy families to pay outrageous fees for a privileged education for their offspring and then claim those fees. In the 1970s, dogs blew the whistle on Prime Minister Fraser's family trust. Prime Minister Fraser, you know, hardly paid any tax at all because he had a family trust. But Fraser was only a symptom, not the full-blown disease. Now, the Fairfax Media has recently uh, exposed these family trusts in four articles, and you can see them on our website if you want to go back into the age of the last week. But Trevor Cobalt of Save Our Schools has analysed the articles as follows. He calls them tax dodges and subsidies for the rich, which are robbing, robbing funding for disadvantaged schools. The Fairfax articles highlighted the use of these secretive family trusts by the wealthy to reduce their tax payments. It's more evidence of how the avarice of the rich is robbing disadvantaged schools and other public services of much-needed revenue. According to a University of New South Wales tax law expert, Dal Bocabella, tax avoidance through family trusts is reducing government taxation revenue by at least $2 billion a year. Almost all this goes to the richest families in Australia. And data released by the Australian Tax Office, the ATO, shows that almost 90% of the trust assets are held by the wealthiest 20% of income earners. Well, we're catching up with America there, aren't we? Bocabella said that his estimated loss of revenue of $2 billion a year is a conservative estimate of 200,000 trusts, that's less than one-third of the total, currently saving 10000 each per year through tax perks, and he acknowledged that the loss could be much, much greater. So as far as we are aware, this is the first expert estimate for many years of the loss of tax revenue through these family trusts. Um, no one has been... Are talking about them since, well, in my memory, the Fraser years. Uh, family trusts are shrouded in secrecy. They're not public. Um, they're not on the stock exchange or anything like that. Although, uh, and you can very rarely find them on the um, corporate uh, website, ASIC re- website either. There's not even a public register of family trusts in Australia. Transparency campaigners say that the veil of secrecy around these trusts in Australia is shielding tax rip-offs, corruption, money laundering and even terrorism. And the Chief Executive Officer of Transparency Australian, Serena Lilly-White, said last week that the veil of secrecy around the trust makes it an easy way to hide millions of dollars. So you don't even need to go to the islands uh, to a tax haven like Mr Turnbull does. And he, of course, would have a family trust, amongst other things. The new estimate shows that the use of secretive family trusts is one of the major forms of tax avoidance of the rich because it adds to the billions in tax concessions for superannuation, negative gearing and capital gains that primarily benefit the wealthy. The annual loss of revenue from just these four tax concessions amounts to about $35 billion a year. And in addition, the wealthy are avoiding paying tax by rampant use of tax havens overseas to hide the assets and income anyway. The cost of the tax avoidance, this $35 billion, probably a lot more, is borne by the rest of us through inadequate government funding for schools, TAFE and universities, as well as for other services such as health care, mental health, public housing, unemployment benefits and so on. So, for example, the federal government claims it cannot afford to fund the $7 billion planned for the last two years of the Gonski funding plan.
Yet the Prime Minister said last week that the government has no plans to reform family trusts. And it's certainly not going to do anything about negative gearing or capital gains tax. As a report in the Fairfax Press commented, given the potential windfalls to public coffers, failure to look to this way is very puzzling. Now, to compound all of this taxation injustice, the richest families in Australia also benefit from nearly $1 billion a year in government funding for the elite private schools that they send their children to. And here we are getting on to the education question. Not only do the wealthy avoid paying tax, but they get huge subsidies out of the taxes paid by the rest of the community. So their taxation argument that they've used for years, oh yes, we pay taxes too, just doesn't hold water anymore. The sheer scale of their avarice is something to behold. And listeners, over the years, I've always been interested to find how people who get involved in this question of state aid suddenly are up against the avarice of the rich private schools and their supporters uh, and the people that they pay, of course, their CEOs. Uh, over the years, I've heard people from the Teachers Federation and the, the New South Wales Teachers Federation and the Australian Education Union say, we just couldn't believe it. We just couldn't believe how bad these people really are and to the, the lengths to which they will go to get public money uh, and uh, deprive so many children of an educational opportunity. Now, there's evidence of what's going on in these wealthy private schools and Trevor Cobalt, who's like a little financial terrier, has been out, of, out after them for a long time. There are 163 private schools in Australia with annual fees of over $15,000 per annum per student. And some 95% of these schools have over 50% of their students from the top socioeconomic advantage quartile and less than 5% from the lowest quartile. And total government funding for these schools amounted to $874 million in 2015 and it contributes to their massive resource advantage over public schools. The average total income per student was just under 30000 because, remember, they get a lot of money from the government as well, compared to the average total income per student in public schools of 13167 And I think that Robert once worked out that you could give a child a pretty good secondary education in Australia for between fourteen dollars and $15,000 per year per student. Uh, that's in a fairly average um, secondary school. Now, many of these wealthy schools receive millions in the taxpayer funding basket. For example, Ascom School in Sydney has fees of 34000 per student in 2015 and 87% of its students are in the top quartile receiving and they receive $3.6 in government funding and so on. There's a lot of, he's given a lot of um, examples of this. For example, Caulfield Grammar has fees of 24000 25000 and 65% of its students are in the top quartile and they received $14.9 million. It's disgraceful injustice and an inexcusable waste that such schools should continue to receive government funding while disadvantaged public and private schools are denied adequate funding and face severe shortages of teaching staff and educational materials. Yet the avarice of the wealthy in avoiding tax through family trusts and other tax concessions goes unchallenged by our governments, while the rest of the community, especially the disadvantaged families, suffer from inadequate services. And so you've got um, quite a lot more. Uh, around the world, pressures mounting, including from the OECD, about all of this. Last year, the head of tax in the OECD called on countries to prize open information about trusts, and he called on countries to establish new registers of company and trust ownership, because it should be a priority for the coalition government and also the Labor opposition. For don't, don't for one moment think that large numbers of members of the Labor Party aren't part of this taxation joke, because they obviously are. 
Now, the Prime Minister's response to the Fairfax revelations was to defend the use of family trusts as a legitimate business structure and say that the government has no plans to make changes. The leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, was nowhere to be seen on the issue. Interesting. But as Assistant Treasurer in the Gillard government, he had said that we accept that trusts are legitimate business vehicles for farmers and the like. Neither the Coalition nor the Labor have policy positions on the taxation of family trusts, except to ignore it. Family trusts used to be set up uh, by families so that they could avoid probate tax, but they have since been used. Once uh, probate, well, probate tax was abolished first by the uh, Queensland government under Jockey Peterson, and then everybody else uh, followed suit. And yet, probate tax is the most important tax if you're not going to set up an aristocracy or a plutocracy uh, in any society. But um, None of this should be of any surprise. And, of course, this is why a lot of our our federal politicians and other politicians are are on the nose with large numbers of voters. Uh, They and their spouses are using these trusts more than any parliament before them, according to the Fairfax Press. Of course, they have been doing their homework. Nearly half of all the coalition MPs have a personal family interest in a discretionary trust compared to 5% of the general population. And senior cabinet members, including the Treasurer Scott Morrison, Finance Minister Kelly O'Dwyer, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, Employment Minister Michaelia Cash and Immigration Minister Peter Dutton have trusts. Ah, I suppose that was what that Michaelia Cash was buying, that lovely second or was it the third or fourth or fifth property up on the Gold Coast with. Now, the Labor MPs use the trusts much less than the coalition members, but the proportion of Labor MPs with trusts is growing. There are 21 Labor MPs or families that now have trusts, and these include Deputy Leader Tanya Plibersek and Shadow Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus, and South Australian Senator Nick Xenophon and Victorian Senator Darren Hinch are prominent crossbenchers with a trust. Very revealing stuff, isn't it? Now, former tax officer Rod Caldwell was prepared to be a whistleblower on this, and he told the Fairfax media, it's not surprising that they, that's the MPs, are reluctant about reform and legislating to rein in their trusts. You're asking them to legislate against their own hip pocket interests. However, It's not just the personal interests of our MPs that squash action to make the wealthy pay tax. It's the political and economic power of those who benefit from the concessions. And their rapacious rorting of our tax system is robbing our governments of revenue needed to provide a viable safety net for the poor and to provide quality services, basic services such as schooling for the whole whole community. And I emphasise the whole community, because it's only public schools that are open to the whole community. And if our children do not have the choice of a local public school, then they are being deprived of a very, very basic democratic right. So um, these Fairfax reports actually demonstrate that not much has changed since the 1980s when Justice Murphy who tried to call the shots and be the whistleblower on the High Court for the, about the taxation system. And there are a few academics at the time too. There were some quite good people out at Monash. Uh, he was um, punished very badly for it. But um, my, memory, my memory of sitting in a tax class at Monash University was that in those days... This was the late 70s, early 80s. Most of my fellow students were going to use their not inconsiderable brains in the service of of men like Frank Bond. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember Hawkey and Frank Bond, but I'm quite sure that um, Hawk and Bond both had family trusts. And um, 
Bond, of course, not only deprived the tax system of a lot of money, he deprived the banks of a lot too. But that's another story. So um, that's our press release for this week. We'll have a little bit of music and then over to Robert. Back of the Dogs program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast, of course, on the WWWs. The Dogs, we are the defenders of government schools. Thank you, Jean, for that very detailed introduction about the tax system in Australia and how it relates to education policy. Um, Alan Bond. Sorry about that, Jane. You, your, your microphone wasn't on. Oh, yes, you, you talk about Frank Bond. Isn't that isn't that the fellow your husband's writing a book about? I think no, it was Alan Bond. I think you were talking about. I think you're right about that. Um, look, today I'm going to talk about something we don't often talk about here on the Dogs Program, and it's a very difficult subject, and I'm sure we'll get a lot of calls and letters. I'm going to talk about Indigenous people. Um, I'm going to talk about them, not for them, because that's not my role and not my place. And I'm not really going to talk about them. I'm going to talk about what people are doing to them. Um, and this, at the moment, specifically relates to education policy and a submission put to the federal government by the Association of Heads of Independent Schools of Australia. Because the Association of Heads of Independent Schools of Australia and their president, um, who is their president? Let me, let me just work out. Oh, that's um, that's no, 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 no. Michelle Green's the president of Independent Schools Australia. The principals, their national chair is Karen Spiller, and she's the principal of St Aidan's Anglican Girls School in Queensland. And uh, Karen Skiller and all the other principals of the Independent Schools of Australia, that's that's the Caulfield Grammars, the MLCs, and also the, um, uh, we call them loosely, um, Jean would disagree, uh, the Christian colleges that are springing up on the outskirts of the major cities of Australia. Um, those schools have decided that they're going to weigh into the Indigenous education debate because they've smelt the writing on the wall. Money. If you, if you, can, you, smell, the money. If you can smell writing. Um, they've sniffed the wind and they've... Listen to Mr Birmingham's sort of interesting statements about taking money away from um, some schools, independent schools, which might be getting too much, and they've worked out where the money is likely to go. At the tail fag end of Gonski, there is perhaps an idea that money should follow students who need it. And Indigenous students in Australia um, are one of the most obvious and highly publicised group of individuals who do need money to support them in their education so that they can get outcomes that are commensurate with the rest of us. So if the money's going to follow Indigenous students in the future, the independent schools and the Association of Heads of Independent Schools 
have sniffed that they want some of it. And they've come up with a proposal about what they're going to do. But before we get to that proposal, I'd just like to set the background about what typically happens in independent schools when it comes to individual students. Now, some time ago, but a teacher, um, an anonymous teacher, in fact, it's important that they remain anonymous, um, they are a whistleblower on what goes on in staff rooms and in independent schools around Australia. And that is teachers are being forced to sacrifice individual children's futures to improve the school data and the ranking of that school. Now, let me explain. Since my school, you can go on the website and look at your school and find out how well your school does. Not your child, but how well your school does. Although there was, during the week, I have to say, a bit of problem with data because some individual students' um, data became available to the public. But that's a separate question and a shameful um, shameful thing that happened actually in the Education Department of Victoria. But let's go back to the my school business. My school ranks schools, you know, how well the kids do. And so the schools in a marketplace, which has been set up by our current governments, um, the schools battle. They verse each other to achieve a, a magical 13 median, 30 median study score, which is an academic benchmark that significantly boosts enrolments Um, in the competitive marketplace. So if you've got an independent school, you want to make sure everyone gets good marks. If everyone gets good marks, then you're a good school. And so therefore, you can charge more money. That's what happens in a marketplace. Now, when it comes to ATAR scores, which are the things that happen at the end of year 12, they used to be the TER rankings and they used to be the VCE scores, but now they're called ATARs, um, there is a great deal of manipulation being done in independent schools. And it's done in a very simple way. Students at the bottom end of the cohort are actually pressured into not doing their ATAR, but actually doing their VCE subjects, but do it as an unscored subject. There's nothing new about this. Now, this means, of course, that the average for the school improves. So that is to say, all your your bottom students in your independent schools, you say, oh, you talk to the parents, and they say, oh, you don't want the pressure of an exam, do you? You don't have to do an exam. They're really, they're really pressureful and horrible, and you're not doing very well. And it'll be good, or bad for your student well-being. So don't do the exam. Whatever you do. Now, of course, this is a victory for the school, but it's not a victory for the student. And because we live in a marketplace, it's been marketized. Independent schools, in particular, and schools in the Catholic sector, and dare I say it, although I've never heard of it, um, some state schools might, but state schools don't have to. Because state schools have a completely different value set, separate to the market, whereas, of course, independent schools are completely market-driven. Now, the process, this is a long-involved process, to get get the school, the school when it tries to manipulate its students, starts at the beginning of the year, when senior staff target students in that senior year. These students present as being poor academic performers with behavioural, perhaps, or learning difficulties, or maybe even mental illness. They have low levels of critical literacy and come from non-English speaking backgrounds. Now, as we know, um, not many of these students exist in independent schools because they're, um, how, how shall we say, independent schools, when they come across someone who's behaviourally challenged, they usually have a meeting where they say things like, perhaps your educational outcomes will be better serviced elsewhere, and they kick them out. Because, of course, independent schools can do that because they are exempt from every anti-discrimination law in the country. They can do whatever they like. So this has been happening for years, as Jean said, and it's happening more and more now because education is a competitive marketplace. Because as Christopher Pine says, competition is always good, um, not when it comes to education. Not for children. So, not for children. So that's the sort of schools we're talking about. They're the sort of schools that the association of the head of independent schools, they, they are the sort of schools that these people run. Now, they've come up with an idea because they want some money and they're buying into the Indigenous education debate. And the way they're doing it, I find, um, well, I personally find it disgusting, but I at least expect anyone listening to this with an open mind would find it very disturbing because they're pushing for educational apartheid. They're pushing to have separate Indigenous campuses within their current schools that only have Indigenous students to separate them off from all the other students. This is their proposal. They propose to create what they call satellite Indigenous-only campuses that would reap hundreds of thousands in extra taxpayers' money under reforms from the Turnbull government. And as entirely Aboriginal campuses, these satellite schools would be eligible for maximum government subsidies. Maximum. 
worth tens of millions of dollars and tens of thousands of dollars per student per year. And that will be regardless of the wealth of the parent. That's regardless of the wealth of the family. Now, the idea, I said, is being pushed by the Association of Heads of Independent Schools Australia, and I have a fair bit of detail on that, which I'll be sharing after a little bit more music, I think. And their chief executive, Beth Blackwood, played down concerns about segregation. Well, I'm not surprised she played down concerns about segregation because that's exactly what it is, and I'm concerned. She says, it's not an isolationist approach, but it is. And she also says, they do have opportunities to integrate with the wider school community on sports days. And sometimes when they play music together and in other extracurricular activities. Why don't they go back to the old mission system, these so-called Christian schools? It was better when they actually had these children on a mission. And then she, and then she pulls out, then she pulls out the stalking horse. She says, at the end of the day, if you're working in partnership with Indigenous communities and it's something that they want for their youth, then it can work. So all I have to do is find someone from an Indigenous community to say, oh, yeah, look, I want my child to go to a nice, expensive private school. So what they're talking about is they're taking an existing franchise, because that's what they are, like Trinity Grammar or St Kevin's or MLC, an existing franchise, and tell someone from Indigenous community, your child can come to our school. But they can't come to the proper school because they'll be taking our ATAR rankings down. They'll be dragging down our averages. So we'll fix our problem. Our problem is that we want to be prestigious. But we want to get lots of Indigenous people in because they have lots of money. So we'll put them over there on their own. And maybe they, because, you know, Indigenous people are good at sports, so maybe we'll bring them in for sports days or something like that. Well, let's hope that there aren't too many Uncle Sams around that agree with this up in Queensland. Sadly, I suspect there might be. Well, let's just, let's just think. I'm not going to talk about it in those terms, but I'm actually, I'm actually going to read out what, it, what their media statements suggest. This, this is their own words, because I don't want to misquote these people. These people are saying something that I find disturbing, which is the segregation or the apartheid. They're proposing apartheid education for the blacks in Australia. And the chief executive, this is quoting, of the Association of the Heads of the Schools, Miss Blackwood, um, says that the Fairfax reporting of the pre-budget recommendations is in danger of losing a sense of urgency when it comes to creating educational opportunities for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. Their proposal calls for greater flexibility in federal school funding model so that Indigenous students attending what they call, and this is, the, this is their word, satellite schools or campuses established by existing independent schools would be eligible for full federal funding as they would be in the campuses were registered as separate schools with separate ATAR schools. It can they have any ATAR schools at all, Robert. And they're saying they're in a hurry. Here we go. It can take five years for a school to achieve registration, says Ms Blackwood. That is five years lost when there's an urgent need to close the achievement gap for Indigenous students. There she is. She's pulling it out. The mechanism we suggest is simply a means of fast-track providing f- using full registration uh, until full registration occurs. She says that Indigenous people have problems with education in Australia today. Well, yes. Yeah, I, I agree with her on that. The achievement gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous students in outer regional and very remote areas is now actually up to five years. There is a problem, but is the solution apartheid? Well, she suggests it is. She says it's vital that governments maintain a sense of urgency in addressing the needs of Indigenous students. They're critical, and they say that their proposal for an apartheid education in satellite schools um, is there to assist in scaling up models that have already proven successful. Ah, she's quoting evidence that they're already doing this and it's successful. Well, I think we should examine this evidence in detail after these messages. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. 
Right. Ah, lovely messages there. You listen to the Dogs Program, the Defence of Government Schools, D-O-G-S. We are the defenders. Uh, before those messages, I was promising um, to investigate the evidence that the Association of the Heads of Independent Schools were putting forward to say that their approach to educating the Indigenous population was in fact the way to go and that they should be given lots and lots of government money, top funding from the government, to do what they want to do because what they want to do is they want to create apartheid schools within their existing campuses. Now, this I'm drawing this information, by the way. I'm not making this up. This is from the um, Association of Heads of Independent Schools submission, pre-budget submission, saying, please give us money for this. They have three recommendations and I think, Jean, you'd be interested in all three. The first is what I've spoken about, which is saying give us more money so we can um, have separate Indigenous schools as part of, part of our process. The other one is that they want there to be a National School Innovation Fund that assists schools in responding to 21st century demands and they want billions of dollars and they want to be able to draw from that pool as well. So some additional funding is what they want uh, from the government. I suppose that's what they would say, isn't it? But their third recommendation... They've never, never, ever been satisfied. The wealthy are never satisfied. That's what, what people who, who only just want enough and are happy to have enough, they don't understand about these people. The next, just the next no one, satisfaction. The next recommendation, I think, is something that's going to concern you a great deal, certainly concerns me and hopefully our listeners a great deal. Their recommendation, and I'll quote it word for word, for the Australian Government to increase the pool of funds available under the Federal Capital Grants Program for mm. non-government schools. Okay, that's standard. Give us more money, but... No, no, they want to expand, and that's for capital, not for running costs. And... For their property. And consider the introduction of a loan subsidy, loan guarantee, or other scheme to support the establishment of new non-government schools and the expansion and refurbishment of existing schools. They want the Adani deal. That's what nothing, they want. No, but nothing they about it, dear. It's been going on for years and years. That's why you've got all of these schools like Mushrooms and why they've, they've closed so many of our, our public schools. That's right. But now they they're want to parasitic. say... They're parasitic. But now they're saying that if a school, an independent school, goes belly up, they say, no, 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 it won't yeah. go belly up because we're going to have a loan guarantee from, right. the, from the federal government. Yeah. So those problems, you know, all those terrible situations of independent schools doing terrible things to children and then going out of business, mm. well, that can't happen anymore, according to them, because they're going to have a loan guarantee. That's, that's their submission. Wow. Anyway, let's get back to the Indigenous question. Specifics. So what have the independent school sector done for the Indigenous population of Australia? Well, I would, I would have thought... There would be a few scholarships. So, charity? It's so, a charity. So you pick the eyes out of the population, you get the really good sporty ones, you get the really smart ones, and you pull them out and you chuck them in a private school, give them a scholarship, and then parade them around saying, look at us, we've, we, we've got our social conscience all fixed. And then give them a job on the ABC. But no, there's more actually. In Melbourne, here around the corner, is the Melbourne Indigenous Transition School. Just, that's just around the corner in Richmond from this radio station. It's a new independent school in Victoria that welcomed its first cohort of students last year, established with substantial supports from the leaders and school communities of Trinity Grammar and St Kevin's. The MITS, that is the Melbourne Indigenous Transition School, provides a one-year residence and academic program for up to 22 Indigenous students from Victorian and Northern Territory schools to assist them transition successfully to secondary schools and obviously to go off to Trinity and St Kevin's. If they're good enough. Only if they're good enough. Only if they're good enough. So they've so rather than just pick the eyes out of the communities around Australia and get the brightest and the best and the sportiest, no, no, that's not good enough. No, 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 no. They found that that doesn't work all the time. So what they do, they've got this little camp they put them into to weed them out some more. So I don't actually think that's a useful use of taxpayers' money, actually. I really don't. So that's one. Here in Victoria as well, there's the Woodley School. That's the Mornington Peninsula. The Woodley School has programs associated with three Indigenous communities. One relationship, developed by the head of Woodley Penbank Campus, entails providing assistance in program development and teacher professional learning for primary schools in the remote Northern Territory community. This program also involves primary level student exchange. Hmm. Doesn't involve many kids, though. I think we'll have to get Mr Foley on from 3CR to discuss this, don't you, to see what he thinks well, about all of this. across all of Australia, 
and I'm, look, there's three more, and I'm just going to go through the next three more. But these five schools are the total contribution of the independent school sector to the Indigenous community in Australia. These five. Okay, so that's two I've told you about. Next one's also, um, well, next one's in, in um, Fitzroy Valley in Western Australia. That is also established by Wesley College, Melbourne. And the studio that's school a real provides. Satellite. Isn't it? <laughs> the studio school provides on country. Provision of Aboriginal students in year 10 to 12. Wesley College serves as a remote campus for the studio school students and year 9 Melbourne-based Wesley students undertake a program. Ah, I see. They take the year 9 students from Wesley here in Victoria. You know how they, you know how they send the Geelong Grammar, Geelong Grammar kids it's up to like 10 Timbertop. Yeah. They, it's, like Timbertop. it's like Timbertop. They, they, they send the year 9 kids out to get, they go bush for a year and then come back and they're human beings. Well, that's not a bad idea in itself, but you don't mask that as contributing to the Indigenous education of the nation. Okay, here's another one. This is in Sydney. This is the, the, the Gora School in Sydney. I hope I pronounced that right. It's a primary school for up to 28 Indigenous students living in the inner city Sydney, founded and established by the St Andrews Cathedral School. That's just behind the town hall there on George Street. Oh, oh. I used to ring the bells there. Anyway, that's separately registered independent school. So it's not actually St Andrews School, so those, so those kids, um, don't, their scores don't affect the St Andrews mm. Cathedral's kids' mm. scores. And the Dakinjung Barker School, that's in, in Wyong in New South Wales. Dakinjung Barker is a regional primary campus of the Barker College of Hornsby, which serves Aboriginal students in the Wyong region. So that's an exclusively... So of all these, I'm going to accept that that one in Wyong is actually a proper school. Um, it's obviously only serving Indigenous students, so they've separated them out there. That's well, that's just what they've chosen to do, and that's what they're getting funding for. It's like a mission school. So uh, up until this point, no, the, ind- the independent sector of the education oh, you know, systems oh, of Australia, oh. their only interest in Indigenous people up until this point involves these five schools, probably in total of around about 150 kids in total. Oh. In total. They're very small. Up until this point. I think what they're saying is that we're not going to touch this unless you give it, but give us buckets of money. So we've come up with a plan for you to give us buckets of money so we can do the Indigenous thing, feel good, take a lot of money away, not affect our ATAR schools from our proper schools, and create an apartheid system of education in Australia based upon the fact that a student is Indigenous or if they're not. So if an Indigenous student wants to go to Wesley College, they can't. They can only go to the satellite school. Why? Because they're Indigenous. The process itself I find immensely disturbing. Um, And this is what they've written down and put as a submission to the federal government, and they want money for this. Now, the Fairfax Media, I'll come back to their article, was not very complimentary about this and did, in fact, mention that concepts of segregation in education have a deep and uh, very, very troubled history, not just in Australia but all around the world. But we'll come back and report on some more issues after these messages and, I think, a little music. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our local community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash survey or call the station during business hours to organise to do the survey over the phone. Call 
Welcome back to the Dogs Program. That's some Pier Gimp there by Greg. And the piece of music we played before, of course, was The Wedding Day at Throndheim, also by Greg. So we're having a Greg day today. Golden chords rather than golden strings we had last week. Yes. Um, look, segregating children out based upon their race in Australia for education, uh, based upon their cultural differences in Australia, is something that we are now currently doing. Like, this is what's happening in Australia. So I, I find it shocking. I've always found it shocking. Most people don't. I mean, you know, the Catholic children are supposed to go to Catholic schools and the Islamic children are supposed to go to Islamic schools. So it's We're a religious it. thing. Just and now minute, Indigenous people it, indigenous people are supposed to be going to Indigenous schools. But um, we're only doing it, remember, with 30-odd percent of our population. The public schools still have over 60 percent of our population in them and they have the children brought together. And, and that's actually do. what's saving us. Indeed. In fact, there are benefits like significant educational proven benefits to putting the children together. You know, it doesn't matter what religion, doesn't matter what, doesn't matter what colour of their skin or what, what religion, doesn't matter. You put them all together, it's impossible to create a society that's divided because you've grown up with everyone. You can't talk about the other when the other is sitting next to you. You can't talk about them over there when they're not over there. They're right here, and some of them are your mates. Some of them you don't like, don't like everyone at school, but that's the point of a state school. And in fact, it's not just my waxing on about the glory days of making sure everyone's not racist. There's actually published research data that shows the importance of school compositional effects on student outcomes. When it's based on studies conducted in the United States, the study has important implications also for Australia. It shows that both socioeconomic, that is rich and poor, racial diversity in schools are beneficial to the kids. It means you get a better education. This is in terms of both academic results, like the numbers, and also in terms of social understandings. It points to the importance of supporting socioeconomically and racially diverse schools, diversity. Now, 50 years ago, the highly influential Coleman Report in the United States found that the socioeconomic status of students' peers were one of the most important predictors of a child's academic achievement. That's still true in Australia and the most important school factor. Since then, there have been numerous reanalyses of these reports as well as other studies examining whether and how socioeconomic diversity relates to student achievement. Now, for example, um, a recent review of studies by the US government's accountability office conducted, concluded that students who were poorer in poorer schools had lower academic outcomes than students in richer schools. Another study found that for high school students, the mean wealth of the student and the student body has as much impact on a student's achievement gap as the individual student's wealth. So what this shows is if you put a poor child next to a rich child, it's going to be a benefit to them. If you put the children together, it's actually going to benefit the nation. Now, I can hear you say over there, what about the rich kid who has to sit next to the poor kid? What about that poor, what about that unfortunate rich child who has to sit next to the poor child? It doesn't affect them in the same way. Because for that child, the most important factor is the wealth of their family, not the person they sit next to. It's one of those win-win situations, which can only happen in a state school, not in a private school, which segregate, as we have proven, segregate based upon race. Because there's not many Indigenous kids going to independent schools at the moment, and they're saying if you do want to get Indigenous schools, kids into uh, wealthier, independent private schools, then the government's going to have to pay for that because they're not going to do it just out of charity. What are they, a charity? No. And they're going to create apartheid with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, no. Well, yes, of course they'll well, do that. That is actually what a private school is about. It's about dividing children, not bringing children together. That's its whole raison d'etre. Yeah. Now, racially diverse learning environments in the United States have positive impacts on the academic achievement for all the students. I'm sorry there, mendacious middle-class people who don't want all those Aboriginal people sitting next to your child. It actually is of benefit. It has been proven to be so. In addition, the student experience in desegregated learning environments has greater positive impacts on academic success. As soon as you segregate children in learning environments, things go down for the poor kids. They stay the same for the rich kids. And which is actually, people often ask me, say, well, what's the solution? 
what's the solution to the education problems in Australia? And it's really, really simple. Every time the government gives a dollar to a child that needs it, don't give it to a child that doesn't at the same time. Because at the moment in Australia, every time you give a dollar to a child that needs it, the government and the laws and the policies mean that we give a dollar to a child that doesn't. This is functionally what's happened for two generations now and we're living with the results. The Australian education system has fallen in a hole internationally and we are becoming a more and more segregated society. So sorry to be all shocking at you, but um, this is something that the Association of the Heads of Independent Schools of Australia are putting forward. Apartheid education. A genuine proposal put to government. Genuine proposal. This isn't made up stuff. Um, for me, I find that shocking. As I'm not talking as an Indigenous person. I'm not even talking really about the Indigenous people. I'm talking about what is being proposed to be done to them. Now, I'm sure... Um, the Compare this to the Northland um, example, where, in fact, the Indigenous children in Northland had, their, within a public school, had their own cultural group. Um, where they learnt their culture, but they were still part of the uh, public school. Oh, I'm not talking about like... It is possible. I'm not uh, talking about you... time in school to go out and talk with your elders and your people. Yeah. No, no, of course. Yeah. Of, of course yeah. these things are very it. special and that. very important. And, I mean, if, if people wish to do that, I mean, I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about putting them out in the bush. I'm talking putting them somewhere else. Mm. Not letting them actually integrate, apart from, inverted commas, sport and music, integrate with the rest of the population so that their marks, so that their culture doesn't infect the goodness of the atarness of, of Trinity Grammar or, or, or Caulfield or St Kevin's or whatever. I find the whole process, uh, the, the whole proposal, um, um, just deeply objectionable. I think what you're trying to say is they won't infect the brand. That's what uh, you find on Gruen, don't you, with the advertising people. The brand. Do you know, the independent I would love to think you're brand. joking. I'd love to think you're joking and I'd love to think you're being sarcastic, but you're not. You're being literal, Jean. That is exactly what they would sit around and talk about in very, very serious terms. Anyway, you've been listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dial and podcast. If you're interested in what we're talking about, not just my outrage, but, but the actual ideas, um, you can please feel free to contact us on our website, which is www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, when we'll be back here on 3CR 855 and the AM Dial and podcast on the WWWs, because we are part of an information service that you're not going to hear anywhere else. There's certainly the analysis of education issues anywhere else in Australia, truth to tell, um, or perhaps even the world. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll be back again next week because we have to keep fighting because there's a fight that has to be had. But until then, it's bye for now. Bye for now.
from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your hill it's there you find your hill I dreamed I saw your hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he I never died, want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our local community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash survey or call the station during business hours to organise to do the survey over the phone. Call So you don't have a problem And if you do, it's not the same problem And if it is, well, there's just nowhere you can go But it's happened many times The history is rich, though we easily forget How a meme can take hold and grab you How it can spread out like a net And everything can change So quick They'll say we are lost or we're dreaming or they'll make a dream for us. They'll try to come up with a good story. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.